Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. We are very excited to present an Artemis podcast series on inspiring women's leadership and conservation. There are a number of reasons why inclusive conservation leadership is vital to the future of our hunting and fishing heritage. Our lands, waters, and wildlife face significant conservation challenges. Working towards effective solutions must draw on the creativity, expertise, and experience of conservation leadership that includes perspectives from all identities and backgrounds. This leadership series will introduce you to dedicated and inspirational women working in all aspects of conservation leadership. We aim to provide insight into their journey and the work that they do. In the end, we aim to inspire you to step into leadership yourself. Together, we will support the next chapter in conservation and help women ascend into local, state, regional, and national conservation leadership roles. Hey everyone, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and I am happy to be recording my second ever in-person podcast um, for our sixth episode of the Leadership Series. I'm honored to be sitting here with Kathy Hadley, who is someone I've learned a lot from and who I consider to be a personal mentor. Uh, and in addition to her extensive background in conservation advocacy and leadership, Kathy is also a co-founder of Artemis and a co-leader of the Montana Artemis Alliance. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and we are sitting very early in the morning in an Airbnb in Helena, Montana, with a nice cup of coffee um, where we gathered for our um, Montana Artemis Alliance strategic planning meeting. And Kathy was kind enough to sit down and have a conversation on record. <laughs> so thank you. Um, can you start off by just telling us a little bit about who you are? Uh, sure. Um, well, I live in southwest Montana on a very small ranch with my husband. Um, I'm a mom, got two boys, two grandkids, and um, I'm a lifelong hunter and angler. I grew up in the east in New York State on an island in the middle of the Niagara River, and uh, I was lucky enough at, in my childhood that we spent all our time outside. And that was common for kids then. Uh, parents threw us out if we didn't go out. And so from the time I was just a little kid, we explored the river and the woods and we played baseball and rode our bikes everywhere that we could go. And we spent a lot of time outside. Um, and that I think was the seeds that were planted in my brain about what the outdoors does for you as a person and creates in your mind um, places to go and things to do. Um, my dad was a hunter and he taught me how to hunt upland game birds. Um, I went to school and college and after college I came out to Montana and have been here ever since. And the reason in part was because Montana is such a wonderful outdoor state. It's a place where you can get out and go hunting and fishing pretty much anywhere, anytime. And uh, it's a value that my family and I, and I have 
uh, held uh, close to us and when our kids were little, that's how we enjoyed ourselves on the weekends and at nights. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I'm an outdoors person. Um, professionally, I um, recently retired uh, about two years ago after being the executive director of the National Center for Appropriate Technology for about 25 years. I worked in the nonprofit sector working on sustainable egg and clean energy solutions. Um, and uh, today I am enjoying retirement. I do volunteer work and um, take care of our little ranch. I, um, oh gosh, a million questions are popping through my head right now. Um, hi. <laughs> So um, I'm curious. I didn't know you grew up on an island um, yeah. in the middle of a river. What, like when I picture an island and a river on, on the east coast of the States, I picture something that's not that big. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. It's actually a, a good-sized river. It's the Niagara River, mm -hmm. and it connects Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. Okay. And on one side is Canada, and the other side is the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, the island was about um, five miles wide and eight miles long, so it's not little. Yeah. But it was a place that was made up of, um, it was in the 50s, 60s, it, just regular people. There wasn't any movie theaters, there wasn't any shopping malls. Mm -hmm. There was grocery stores and um, drug stores. Um, and so we could, we had the whole island that we could hang out with. And the things, I cringe at the stuff we used now as an adult, the things we did as kids. Um, because Niagara Falls was like four miles away. So especially when we were in high school, when we could get our boats and motors and go out in the crazy, we would, we would water ski everywhere. We would scuba dive in the places we we weren't certified we didn't take courses we just, we just oh did we just did it <laughs> in the winter time there'd be ice on the banks that would go out into the river but the river never froze but still we'd sled down the banks into the ice and I'm thinking oh I, I would kill my kids if they ever did anything <laughs> like this but yeah it was a pretty unique uh, upbringing I think yeah. maybe not to my time because at the time it was a time when most families had large families and kids were freer than they are today mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think of um, just like the sense of place as a kid mm -hmm. and and exploring the world around you and to have uh, such a defined um, space to explore yeah. and to explore in depth yeah. And you couldn't get off of it, and you so get off of it. which our parents were glad about that. Yeah. They knew we were someplace on that darn island. Yep. yep, yep. And they could start like the 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 twilight telephone conversation. <laughs> Have you seen Kathy? Send her home. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Um, do you like? Was there a particular part of that ecosystem that you connected with as a kid? Um, the river, yeah. I think, because the river was everywhere. Mm -hmm. So we fished when, when my mom, I grew up in a family with six kids. My dad was a union steel worker. Mom was a housewife, which is what most women were at the time. So one income family, we had, we had a house, we had one car, one bathroom, one um, 
telephone and at one time six teenagers. Think about that. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> Think about that today, how that would work. But um, when my dad would come home from work and uh, we would, he'd throw us all, we'd all get into the car, no seat belts of course, mm -hmm. and uh, we'd pile in and we'd go, there were two uh, parks on the island and he would take us to Buckhorn State Park and we would go fishing and have a picnic. That was a pretty, either that or we'd go to Beaver Island State Park, which is, which was a swimming beach. Mm -hmm. And so we would, he would alternate and um, we didn't have a lot of equipment compared to today. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, he would give us a hook and a bobber and some line and tell us to go get a stick. Honest mm -hmm. to gosh. And it worked. It was crazy. It worked. But and so you'd see six little towhead kids oh. sitting on the bank fishing, grabbing dinner. Yeah, for a while. And uh, so yeah, those those two state parks. It's interesting. Those two state parks were a special place in my heart because that's where our families went to recreate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very far from home, but we thought it was a special deal when yeah. we did it. Yeah, um, and it seems like that, that love of river has stayed with you with living next to the Clark Fork River here in Montana yes. now and the work you've done for that watershed. Yeah, yeah, rivers, oceans, special places. Mm -hmm. It sounds like just listening to your background, both with your connection to that place and with your um, dad as a union steel worker, I imagine advocacy and organizing was a part of your youth is that accurate you know not really um certainly when i was in my 20s yes mm -hmm. but I, I as you said i did grow up in a union household so there were many strikes i remember mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and as a kid the you know we were taught never to cross a picket line I remember people bringing in groceries during the strike time because we had eight people in our family and my dad would say this came from the union. Mm -hmm. So I think seeds were planted at that time about you stand up and fight for things you care about. And he was very, he was a very serious union. He was a bricklayer by trade. Um, and so he did teach us a few lessons that still stick with all of us yeah. today, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that step from outdoors person to engaged conservationist? I'll give it a shot. Um, when I went to college, I, I majored in biology just because I liked the outdoors. And um, I had my first child when I was um, in graduate, well, in my senior year when I graduated, and my sister Lois lived about 10 miles away from me. And at the time, I was a single mom, and she became my babysitter. And it worked out for us really well. She was a stay-at-home mom. She had a, a little boy um, six weeks older than my son. And um, so these two little kids, we traded kids all the time. Yeah, cousins like that are the best. Yeah. So in the morning, um, after I got out of grad school, I, would, I had a job working in a lab, and I'd take Eric to her house every morning and every evening. And when I have coffee with her, we talk about 
what sisters talk about. Mm -hmm. And then in the afternoon, she'd bring Eric back. And um, we did this for a couple of years. And by this time, I had hooked up with my husband that I have now. And um, one day over coffee, she started telling me about her kids being really sick and reading about some chemical contamination in the neighborhood. And without going into a great deal of detail, it turns out she lived in a place called Love Canal that many people know about. But at the time, nobody knew about it. So at night, she would come by and we would start talking about Love Canal situation. And my husband was a teacher at the, a professor at the University of Buffalo in biology. And so he offered to get some help with some of the other professors about some of the chemicals that she read about um, to find out what was going in her local area. A long story short, this was a trip <laughs> that um, what we started went on for a couple years and that's where I first learned how to become an advocate because there wasn't a script for us to follow, but basically what we did was organize the neighborhood to start the uh, citizen protests about living on top of a chemical waste site. Mm -hmm. That this, it was a moderate income neighborhood and a school had been built on top of a toxic waste site. And the reason her little boy w was not feeling well was because of toxic fumes that had come in through the school and around the neighborhood. And that's and some of the children in the neighborhood were very, very sick, and it was all because of this. And it's a long and involved story, but basically that's where we learn by our bootstraps about, okay, how do we get people engaged? And we'd sit around the table talking about it and decide, well, somebody's gotta go knock on doors and say, do you have any sick kids in your family? Do you, you know, what's going on with your family? Have you had any, have your pets, have you noticed anything going on with your pet paws? Because what would happen when the dogs would go out on the community lawns and there was a, some toxic waste, they'd burn their paws, for example, and all of a sudden your dog would come back and injured. Mm -hmm. And at the time, nobody knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So that's when we had to just learn by our bootstraps on how to organize people and we ended up doing that and we ended up having community meetings and we ended up creating uh, protests and doing signs and um, knocking on all the politicians doors my sister we decided had to be ahead of it because she lived there and we lived 10 miles away so mm -hmm. you in a community, you have to have someone from the community to be the spokesperson. Mm -hmm. Can't be somebody from outside, even if outside is two miles away, mm -hmm. for credibility sakes. So that's, anyway, that's where I first learned about how, how to become an advocate. What about that stuck and said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest <laughs> of my life? <laughs> yeah, something did. Something did. Well, it was such an injustice in these people most of them were chemical workers and their biggest asset in their lives and most of them were young families was their house mm -hmm. and frankly their houses now are worth zero right so it was a fight worth having yeah. that was one thing but the other thing was so many kids were sick and that was the other fight mm -hmm. that was worth having and 
mothers will do anything to defend their kids. And I was worried about my son who, um, in the wintertime, Lois had the kids in her basement. She had she had fixed it up for like a big kids room where the kids spent all the time. Well, there was a sump pump down there. Mm -hmm. And the sump pump is, later on, studies showed, the sump pump is where the chemical vapors came into the house. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Gosh, that's such, like, one of the questions that I have further down um, talks about celebrating successes um, because in the conservation world it can be hard sometimes to celebrate the successes we have along the way um, in light of the big picture which feels daunting um, but it sounds like this the success that you had with um, your sister did that help <laughs> did that help like say not only is it a fight worth having but um, change can be made it did, and um, in that particular situation, after about a year and a half, my husband and I left and moved to Montana. So I didn't finish the fight there personally, but we left it in a place that we knew it was gonna be finished. Mm -hmm. um, this transformation of my sister to become this incredible leader. Mm -hmm. um, when Pres She ultimately ended up going and getting a, um, a meeting with President Carter which is when he said and declared it a toxic waste site and that all the people in the area would be evacuated. That was the victory, the first victory. And it felt really, really good. Like we actually did it. We actually were able to save these people, to save my sister and my niece and my nephew and they are going to live in a healthier place, mm -hmm. and we're going to stop this horrible um, situation. It's going to be um, a place where nobody can live again, and it's going to be cleaned up. And this was before Superfund. There was no Superfund at the time, so it did. It felt like an incredibly good victory, and so that reinforces: Hey, if you advocate, maybe you can win. Mm -hmm. It was a very frustrating path forward. It took a long time, much longer than we anticipated, but ultimately we won. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also curious about, because uh, a lot of your, so um, some of your past conservation leadership experience is um, past president of the Montana Wildlife Conservation, past president of the National Wildlife Federation. And uh, when did, did that not switch, uh, focus, I guess, narrowing of focus, go from, um, to wildlife. When did that narrowing of focus aim more specifically at wildlife? Um, or would you even phrase it that way? I have to think about that. Um, I've always been interested in wildlife and being out on the landscape and, and hunting and camping and hiking, all that kind of stuff. Um, when I, when I, my when my family and I moved to the Southwest Montana on the Clark Fork River, it was sort of an ironic situation because um, we fished the river, and this was most of your listeners won't know where it is, but it was uh, at the headwaters of the river, and at the time the fish population was pretty good if you fly fished. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in the summertime, there's an incredible caddis hatch, um, late May, 1st of June. And um, you could really, you could go out after dinner and, and there would be fish up rising everywhere. And you'd fish until you couldn't see your fly anymore. And you'd, you'd catch fish after fish. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we took our kids there from the time they were little. And when I first started exploring the river, one of the things I found was places where nothing was growing. And um, it's subsequently been named Slickens. And it turns out the Clark Fork River was contaminated with metal mines. And um, I started asking questions about why is this river contaminated with metal mines. And long story short, my first endeavor into the outdoor wildlife, if you think about fish and wildlife together as wildlife mm -hmm. area, was working as a citizen advocate to protect the Clark Fork River. Mm -hmm. And finding out that the river was contaminated with metal mines that came from Butte during a flood in 1908, I think. And the flood caused um, these mine contaminants to flow downstream into uh, the Milltown Dam near Missoula, where you live, mm -hmm. and be deposited there. So there was a Superfund site in Butte, and there was a Superfund site in Missoula, but there was no Superfund site on the river. Oh, interesting. So my first really big citizen advocate project was to get the river declared a Superfund site. Mm. And so I started, uh, and this is before internet, so you had to contact officials with telephones and take a ride over to Helena. Mm. And so I started doing that. At the time I had a second child and, and Liam was just, oh, about two, two or three and I lucked out and I was a stay-at-home mom for a couple of years, so I had more time to do this. Mm -hmm. And I started writing letters and talking to people around the river community. And um, what our goal was, was to get the river part of the Superfund site so it would get cleaned up, because it wouldn't get cleaned up unless we did that. Right. And the idea of the waste came from Butte and they flowed downstream, and what they did is flood the floodplain with these contaminants. Um, so a long story short, it took two years and I found other people by networking with them um, up at Georgetown Lake and um, in Missoula and Deer Lodge and Butte. And we ultimately decided to form a river protection group called the Clark Fork Coalition. Okay. So we did, we formed the Clark Fork Coalition and um, so then there was more of us, and more of us could yell and scream about why isn't the connector between Butte and Missoula part of the Superfund site? Mm -hmm. and, and wrote letters, of course, and made phone calls. And ultimately, we went to wa Washington, D.C. and met with uh, high-level EPA officials there, and I was, I was there <clears throat> and brought a map of Butte the river in Missoula, showed them the connection, i.e. the river. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's the. Yeah. To me, it really is, Marcia, it's just senseless. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, um, you're right. And right. next thing happened, we had a Superfund site. Nice. The irony of all this, this was in the, I would say it's around 1986, 
This is 2022. The river still is not cleaned up. Mm -hmm. It's getting cleaned up. But for all the people listening to this who are advocates, sometimes change takes decades yeah. when you're talking about landscapes and um, bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. But it is getting cleaned up and the state filed a, a lawsuit, a what is called a natural resource damage lawsuit because the river was part of a Superfund site, it's under the Superfund law of the state. And what the state did is sued the people responsible for the contamination for the loss of fish and wildlife resources mm. and for the loss of clean water and for the loss of recreational opportunities. Had that been done before? Um, probably, I don't really know. Yeah. It's called a natural, it's a special part of the Superfund law, mm -hmm. but it had, it had not been done before in Montana right. and they got a huge settlement and they have been using that money to help restore the river. Superfund will clean up the mine tailings, mm -hmm. uh, it's called remediation, but it won't necessarily restore it and, and what the, it will take decades to restore an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the natural resource damaged people will try to accelerate the restoration. For example, by spending money to purchase uh, trees that they can plant along the river as mm -hmm. opposed to just leaving a clean landscape mm -hmm. and letting it self-perpetuate. Right. They have also done things like use the money to provide additional recreational opportunities to the public that were lost. They bought uh, lands at Georgetown Lake and made a camp camping place for people to camp and fish because of lost opportunities on the river. Okay. They uh, bought um, other places where along the river to, to allow the public access to the river that they haven't had in the past so people can fish mm -hmm. and hunt. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, that was my second big entrance into advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> and then you never moved again. <laughs> and I, no, we still live there. And, um, and then, as part of as part of this river work I was doing, um, the Montana Wildlife Federation had a pretty active at the time uh, litigation uh, staff, Tom France. Yes. Uh, and I had talked to him about how to do some of the work that I was trying to do as a volunteer. And he had provided some good guidance to me on that. And um, because we were hunters and anglers, we joined the Montana Wildlife Federation and so got their newspapers. At the time, they would deliver every two months a newspaper mm -hmm. uh, newsletter. And I got interested in the work that the Montana Wildlife Federation was doing and ultimately uh, was elected to their board. And so I spent, um, about, I don't know, 15, 20 years on their board. Mm -hmm. And the Montana Wildlife Federation is a part of the National Wildlife Federation, so I learned why I was associated with MWF about National Wildlife Federation. Mm -hmm. So it just grew and grew and grew. And at one point, um, as you know, Marsha, all the affiliates have representatives, and I would go to the National Wildlife Federation meeting representing Montana, mm -hmm. and then I got on the National Wildlife Federation Board as the rep from 
Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And uh, anyway, that's how I that's connected with them. Yeah. And how long have you been on the National Board? Um, this time, I've been on um, s seven years. Okay. I like, so one thing I would love to, because board, I mean, what's the term? The term's not seven years. <laughs> the term on, it depends on a couple things. With the National Wildlife Federation Board as a regional director, which is what I was originally, mm -hmm. you have three three-year terms. Okay. Then if you're elected as a vice chair, you have two two-year terms. And I say this time because I was on the board starting in 2002, and I went right through that and became the vice chair, and then I got off the board. Yeah. I was done. But then, in an odd set of circumstances, in 2015, I got a call from some affiliate representatives asking me to run for the chair position, and I wasn't on the board at the time. Hmm. And... Um, it was a unique circumstance, and so I did that at their urging and got elected as chair. Even though you still weren't on the board, that was like a like, welcome back, Kathy. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> it was very unusual. Yeah. That, um, and what happens is you're you're elected chair elect, mm -hmm. so you spend one year sort of learning chair. Yep. duties okay. and then two years as a chair. That's nice, a little bit of an apprenticeship. Yeah, it's really helpful, mm -hmm. really helpful. They, it's a really smart way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I think, I mean, one, I really admire and respect the longevity that you give to organizations uh, because I think that depth of knowledge and engagement and institutional knowledge in a board is rare and priceless and yeah, just incredibly valuable. I'm curious what value you saw in staying on the, Mon like for example, on the Montana Wildlife Federation board for 15 years and then. You know, that's a great question. And part of it is, it's about wildlife and wild places always. But part of it is I have a personal interest in nonprofit management. Mm. Um, as I mentioned on our opening, I worked for a nonprofit for many years and ultimately became the executive director. And I had a board of directors that I reported to. Mm -hmm. And nonprofit management is different than for-profit management. Uh, I worked for a time for state government. It's mm -hmm. different than working for state government. And my observation is people who get connected to um, with organizations like the Wildlife Federation or Artemis, they're interested in the issues. Mm -hmm. And um, it's rare to find people who are interested in the management and administration of a nonprofit. Yeah. And I always felt um, I was blessed with learning about nonprofit management over time. When I first started at NCAT, I was a, I was a line staff person and then became a, a, a low, a manager and then a vice president, and then also. So anyway, I learned a lot. I learned how boards worked, how board elections worked. I, I learned about the legalities of nonprofits. So when I think about providing service to an organization, if you've got a, we've got people who are just incredible communicators, for example, 
and I always admire them because I'm not. And it's so valuable to have somebody on your board who knows how to get the word out about what you're doing. So I can't bring that to the board, but what I could bring is nonprofit management. Mm -hmm. And the Wildlife Federation, like most nonprofits, they go in cycles over time where they might be very stable and doing very well, and then they hit a bad point and their finances go down. And, you know, it's there's a natural progression of nonprofits. And with Montana Wildlife Federation, that certainly happened. And um, when I first started, they had about, I don't know, six or seven staff. No, when I first started, there was just a half-time executive director. Oh, wow. Over time, it built up to like seven people. Yeah. Then another 10 years pass and they're down to four, and then they're up. And that's when having some skills about what's important and what's what can you leave on the table is, is helpful. And so anyway, that's why I think I, I spend time and commitment just because I think these things are important and other people don't wanna do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, who wants to do administration? Right. But, but I can help with that. Yeah. That's funny because I think I share that with you. That's the stuff that gets me excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're odd dogs, Kathy. We are. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um, and I can see uh, the beauty of staying with one organization and following them through that and, and, and maintaining the, um, the values and the focus and the direction. Yeah, and there's a fine line from staying too long and yeah. – yeah. um, but – the history of the organization uh, important mm -hmm. and if you have a board that turns over quite a bit it's mm -hmm. like you lose the internal knowledge of how did we do this how did we get through this and those things are valuable yeah yeah I agree and I feel like um, oftentimes when you have high turnover on a board or frequent turnover on a board you have the same conversations over and over again yeah and and you can have the this is why we chose to do it this way conversation which i think is valuable just to have that historical grounding yeah. um, as as situations are rethought mm -hmm. um how have you seen so in in that length of service how have you seen the conservation community and particularly leadership in the conservation community change and how hasn't it <laughs> Well, when I, thinking about Montana and when I started being associated with the Montana Wildlife Federation, um, that organization is the longest standing conservation organization in Montana, meaning they're over, I think, 80 years old. Mm -hmm. um, they've been around a long, long time fighting for fish and wildlife and wild places. But in the... I think it started in the 70s, but by the 80s and 90s, there was a splintering of groups. It used to be, um, as I said, Montana Wildlife Federation, we would talk about elk and deer and antelope and bighorn sheep and ducks and geese and fish and you know, all the different species. But now there's a mule deer foundation, the mm -hmm. elk foundation, the bighorn or mm -hmm. wild sheep. Mm -hmm. So you have these specialized groups uh, that have formed and are relatively, and some of them very successful over time. 
and in, a, in some ways that's been good, I think, but in some ways it's been bad because it has splintered the the unanimity of what we're all in favor of. You know, if you're if you're interested in protecting mule deer, it's likely that those mule deer habitat that you're concerned about also affects elk mm -hmm. or sage grouse. But now we have all these different groups, so it's become a lot more complicated, a lot more, I think there's probably a lot more people involved, but in narrower scopes. Yeah. So, so the whole conservation community, it just seems like it's grown immensely because not just with splintering of groups, but I think across the country, thank goodness people are worried about the planet we live on. Mm -hmm. And as generations become of age more, younger people are interested in trying to protect what we have. So I think all of that's really, really good. Yeah. But it's a much more complex um, environment to try to get conservation work done, mm -hmm. I think, in today's world. It's interesting because I feel like we just did a podcast last week with Sarah Parker Polly about Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Um, and one of the things we talked about is is it, it feels like um, after that species-specific focus that the conservation community turned, that there's like an effort to turn us again back to whole habitat and whole landscape conservation. Are you seeing that at the state level? In the, in the conservation community? Because I think we're seeing that in the agency approach, an attempt to take that approach more uh, effectively. That's really a good question. Um, I'm not sure I do see that at the state level. But having said that, what I think I have seen over the last really recent time, four or five years, is more coalition building mm -hmm. between groups. Mm -hmm. Whereas everybody was standing on their own two feet. I think we have learned over time that that's not the best way of creating wins for wildlife. Mm -hmm. That we have to work more um, in concert with each other and together. Mm -hmm. And that the different groups have got to form coalitions that are stronger than we are separate. Mm -hmm. So I'm really happy to see that. And why that's happening um, is a good question. I think it's because, in part, we've seen so m the country splits politically so much right now. And in the past, wildlife used to be a nonpartisan issue. But at least in Montana, it's become very partisan. And uh, we've been losing. Yeah. So. So desperate measures are called. So by God, we got to meet with our colleagues and say, come on, we've got to all get on the same page, at least on two or three critical issues. Yeah. So, so that's good, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah creating that um, power in numbers. Power in numbers, yeah. We, we may not agree on everything, but this we agree on, and we need to step forward. It, it's sort of ironic, because in Montana, I think people, conservation, landowners, sportsmen, we are all more alike than different, and our values are all more alike than different. Mm -hmm. The differences are small, mm -hmm. but the political landscape uh, magnifies those differences to make them huge, mm -hmm. when I don't think they really are, mm -hmm. if we could ever get past that. It's so interesting, because I think, thinking back to the way that you advocated for the Clark Fork River, and that 
like everything was relationship and communication and um and connection and 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 that has to be a more intentional practice now than than it feels like I mean that used to just be the way it was done and now it's an intentional focus to yeah. build those relationships and have those conversations yeah you know that's an interesting observation because when we did that um as i said there wasn't an internet mm-hmm. there was an email you didn't do an email blast of 40 people and say help i need or yeah. we need you because yeah. when you get an email to 40 people we need you it doesn't mean a lot right. instead I had the call up or one of my colleagues had the call up and say can I have an appointment with so-and-so at the EPA office on this day and time and our meetings were face-to-face yeah. or we talked on the phone and it wasn't a conference call it wasn't a zoom call it was a one-on-one call yeah. mm-hmm. so the whole thing was or going to the governor's office or DEQ we did all those things yeah. And um, it was always face-to-face, and we've lost that. Um. Yo. Yeah, oh, we could go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> it rabbit hole. It, it's a rabbit hole, because that's still where the work is done, right? That's still how the change is made. Um, and it's interesting that that needs to be, like, we have to, f- uh, in, in some ways, we have to fight really hard to do the work that way. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, many things that I admire about your leadership is your approach and your commitment to, cre- to creating change from within, mm-hmm. um, like showing up and doing the work and um, contributing your voice towards the change that you want to see. Can you talk about your experience with that and what you've learned about that? If I understand your question right... <laughs> When you say that from the change within, mean meaning being part of the group, yeah, that yeah, because I think um, uh, uh, I think it's hard, right, to be the person to step into a group where you are um, unique <laughs> in whatever you bring, whether it's a perspective or a demographic or an approach, um, and to work with the group for change as opposed to working against the group for change? I think my philosophy is real simple on that. If if I commit to working with Artemis um, or the Wildlife Federation, you go to a gathering or a meeting and you're one of many advocates sitting at the table, that you have to be a part of the group, meaning if it requires you to go make coffee, you go make coffee so everybody has, that you're, that you're not better or than anybody else, that instead you're just part of this group that has a vision of moving forward for change together. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to contribute what they have to contribute in whatever manner that looks like. Um, but we're all connected together to do it together I don't know if I'm making sense but it doesn't it doesn't matter what the chore is that has to be done if if someone says to you will you chair this meeting the answer is yes if someone says would you mind going um, taking notes for this meeting you do it Mm -hmm. it's I just think in order to be part of the group you have to be seen as a colleague and someone that people can trust and that 
you're willing to do just about anything to achieve the goal that you've set for the group, that the goal mm -hmm. has been set. No, I appreciate that because I think um, it's almost like 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 being a part of that change really comes down to just showing up fully and authentically, <laughs> and and maybe in um, being who you are and stating your thoughts and your and your observations and your opinions without. I don't know if I want to say without filter because sometimes filters are good. <laughs> but um, but without holding back, right? And just like like you can by participating wholly in the group decision making process and the group conversation, that change will happen just because you're there presenting who you are and what you think. Mm -hmm. As are the others, hopefully. As are the others, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, in a um, collaborative way. Yeah, and I think that's a formula for success. Mm -hmm. And it keeps people focused on the goal, the group goal, mm -hmm. as opposed to the inner group things that can happen when people don't come to the meetings with those values in their head. Right. Okay. <laughs> now the question is, how do you like how do you create an environment where like cuz you can only do you, right? Like you can show up in that space with that value. Not everybody does. It's true. Um, what then? Yeah, that that's probably not an uncommon thing, actually. You get a bunch of people together, and we're all different. Um, and if the group is large enough, somebody's going to act out, mm. I think, yeah. inevitably. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, it depends on the sort of the rules of the game of the group and mm -hmm. how you handle it, I think. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I appreciate about uh, serving on the National Wildlife Federation Board is we have a group of, we have a, a set of statements mm -hmm. that we oftentimes read before we okay. even start our meeting. And they're sort of um, trying to, it's not rules, what are they called? It's like values or guidelines? Yeah. It, for example, uh, step up and step back, yeah. right? Yeah. Share the floor. Yeah. But it's just a set of meeting mores or something that you all agree to. And I found that it sort of helps um, get your head in the right place. Mm -hmm. If you start a meeting with a set of, this is how we're going to act towards each other mm -hmm. during this meeting, it's not where you spend 15 minutes talking about it. It could just be a chart on the wall. Mm -hmm. But, um, for example, I've been in meetings oftentimes where there's a person who, who speaks all the time mm -hmm. and doesn't share. And then you have naturally people who are introverts who never say anything. But those people often have very important things that they're thinking about and need to share. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you review these, these actions ahead of time about how we behave towards each other, it just sort of sets a scene. Yeah. I've, I've found that helpful and Nationals taught me, I've learned a lot serving on nonprofit boards, these kind of trainings, but it really helps to yeah. set the stage. And set the, set the stage, you're right, so everybody gets in that frame of being, but also there's something to reference mm -hmm. back to, like 
this is how we operate and and you need to operate that way <laughs> it's like there's an accountability factor it is and even in the world of zoom now when we do committee meetings and we and we just flash on the screen for two minutes those set of behaviors that we're going to practice mm -hmm. and if somebody during the meeting doesn't practice you can send a private chat to that person and make them accountable in a way that's not going to embarrass them or you mm -hmm. and people actually appreciate that yeah. i didn't mean to do that i didn't realize i, was I, didn't, that. I didn't yeah. Mean to do that. yeah and so actually it works pretty well yeah. it can work pretty well not always yeah. obviously yeah um are there things that you intentionally put in place or um ways that you facilitated a group when you were president to create a more collaborative decision-making body? Yes. Um, when I was chair of the state group, the Montana Wildlife Federation, um, we had a committee structure that wasn't working very well. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time with the executive director trying to improve that because at the time it seemed like the executive committee was making most of the decisions and to me that's not mm -hmm. democratic mm -hmm. and um and committees can work really well and they're empowering for members and board members if they're done right mm -hmm. um, if they're not done right they're not helpful at all mm -hmm. so for example we worked on that and um and basically set up a system so that the, the recommendations on policies have to come from a committee first, so that the power's with the people, not with um, the executive director and the, the chair of the organization. Yeah. And, you know, organizations go through growth spurts and good times and bad, and anyway, that was helpful, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, with National Wildlife Federation in that particular situation when I was chair. We have committees too with a chair, mm -hmm. always with a chair. Um, and I uh, implemented uh, vice chairs mm. with the idea that we needed a pl place for people to have an opportunity to learn how to be a chair mm -hmm. so that vice chairs could learn how to be a chair with the idea they then go to the next step. Yeah. But just those kind of things to try to open up more learning opportunities and uh, places for people to become leaders, mm -hmm. more leaders, mm -hmm. not fewer, mm -hmm. and to sort of spread the power. I like that t-shirt, more leaders, not fewer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are just, they weren't critical, but those are the kind of ways, the kind of things that I was thinking about. Yeah. But they, I think they are critical in the sense that it does, um, it, it focuses back on that collaboration, mm -hmm. right? And, and leaving the decision-making power there because I, I've always thought that, you know, 10 brains on something are better than one and transparency is the only way to be. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. The chair of the National Wildlife Federation took it a step further. Mm -hmm. There's always room to learn, right? Mm -hmm. And when he became the chair and the chair uh, assigns people to committees and committee chairs and co -chair, uh, vice chairs. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, uh, Kathy set up the sy system we have for vice chairs. I'm going to change the system and make it co-chairs. Mm -hmm. 
And his observation was that that when you had a chair and a vice chair, a lot of times the vice chairs didn't step up and didn't learn as much. And his goal was to make two co-chairs where they had to talk to each other and learn together. And I smiled and said, you're right, Ken. I think that's a better system. So we've got that now. And... um, and it, it's more complicated because, you know, it's much easier when one person's in charge than two, mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And people are busy and we're all volunteers. So before a, a meeting, you and your co-chair have to talk. You have to set the agenda. You have to um, check out things that need to be checked out. And um, it's been interesting, but it's it's better. Yeah, so it's better. It's, it's better that we keep on trying to improve. Yeah. Not easier, right? No. But it's better. It's better because for leadership and um, for communication, it's better. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in preparation for the leadership training that we did back in February, one of the conversations that I was having was about, uh, so we did that part two where we brought together uh, women who are currently serving on boards to just talk and support each other and hash out some things that they've been thinking. And one of the questions is like, board work is hard and it should be hard because it's where really difficult decisions are made and collaboration is the goal and so it's finding the way forward for multiple perspectives and stakeholders and um, wants and needs so it's hard um, and it shouldn't be toxic right it should be a productive hard but that's still but there's still going to be disagreements and arguments and and breaks in relationships and so how like what happens after that, after a break in relationship? How have you worked to maintain a working relationship past the point of conflict? That's a good question. Um, And I think there's different responses depending on why that relationship was broken. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I'll give you uh, an example. I spent many years on the Wildlife Federation board and then got off in five or eight years. In the, at the time, the Wildlife Federation was in deep trouble financially. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I'd always been interested in that organization and got back involved trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the board members there who happened to be the chair at the time had called and and wanted me to uh, consider spending more time on the board running for a position there. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to help. And um, he said, uh, what would you like to do? And I said, what do you need? And long story short, we needed a treasurer. I said, fine. Uh, You stepped on this treasurer to an organization organization that was suffering financially. Yeah. Kathy, you're a glutton. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I got to the board, to the meeting, to the meeting where all this was going to happen. And he he took me aside and he said... um, there's been a change of plans. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, so uh, I don't want you to run for treasurer. I said, okay, I'll be happy to do whatever you need. 
he said, I want you to be the secretary. And I said, why? Well, so-and-so doesn't want to be a secretary. They were all guys. Mm -hmm. I was the only woman. Mm -hmm. And I said, so you're telling me you want me to run for this secretary because this, nobody, else wants to do it. nobody else wants to do it. And honestly, it pissed me off. Yeah. It royally, and I believe to this day, the reason they wanted me to do that was because I was a woman. Mm -hmm. And I lost all respect for this man. Mm -hmm. I really did. And so going forward, I had to work with him on the board and I did work with him, but I was never... So that trust was broken. The trust was absolutely broken, and it is still broken to this day. And I'll do the work. I'll be polite and uh, attend committee meetings or whatever with him. But there is no depth to our relationship, and there never will be. Right. I just think it's <laughs> we've come too far to be putting people in these little boxes. Mm -hmm. And um, and if there was a different reason, I would have been happy because I don't really whatever you need I can yes. that I can provide is fine with me yeah. but it wasn't really a need it was a sexist decision mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. like yeah. um, so that's just that's just one example of yeah. um, on on issue things where you really have significant differences with a trusted member that you've had I've I've deal with it by creating some distance, a distance of place and time. And talking to myself about the person, they are a good person. They've always done good work. It's like you've got to get over the hurt or whatever the emotional feelings you've had with this breakup of this relationship you've had with this person from for, for however long it has been. Mm -hmm. But if it it was, if you can put some distance between you and them for a period of time until you, it's like when you get mad and then you get over it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it always goes back to the same level of a relationship, but I think with some grace you can get there right. if you feel it's worth it. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's the uh, for both of those examples. It's it's like. I think oftentimes we expect too much of ourselves when we talk about collaboration um, and in the sense of like the relationship has to be deep and meaningful in order to collaborate and it doesn't. <laughs> you, it can be and it's lovely when it is but collaboration um, is possible regardless. It is. Yeah. 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 Because again, uh, if you are working with people whose va whose basic values are the same as yours, mm -hmm. that your values are setting your goals, even if they have other values that are different than yours, if you can just stay focused on the ones that are the same, mm -hmm. you can make progress. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, so we are... Uh, Coming up on an hour, Kathy. Wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm glad when you're having fun. Well, you're a good person. You do a great job of asking questions. Well, sitting across the table from you and just having permission to pick your brain. <laughs> 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 this is my dream. <laughs> um, 
Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet or any points that you want to talk to our listeners about leadership? Well, I guess one of the things that I could say is that when Artemis first started, nobody knew where it would go. Mm -hmm. And um, trying to organize women outdoor hunters and anglers had ha had been tried in the past and hadn't worked very well, which is okay because a lot of times you got to try things until you figure out how to make it work. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I just get so much energy from with Artemis is seeing how many younger women just step up and go for it. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, I just think it's so unique to Artemis, or maybe I'm just so old and I think it's so cool. But um, I remember when we first started and like talking to Jess Johnson, mm -hmm. and she had been bow hunting for like two years. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's like nobody sometimes or many times nobody tells the women how to go do this they figure it out for themselves mm -hmm. they go to archery shops they talk to people they talk to other women and then they just go buy their equipment and go yeah. it's so different than the model that i was raised on which is you know a parent shepherding you and so i so admire and i think it's so cool mm -hmm. so um and I think about these women as being future conservation leaders. If they can figure out never being adult onset hunters, never having done that before, because the outdoors can be scary if you don't know how to navigate, if you don't know how to, if your skill set is um, not up for the job, it can be pretty scary. Yeah. When I think about all these women who are just going for it, that they would make incredibly good conservation leaders as they turn their attentions from not just hunting, but then protecting the places that they hunt. Right. So I think that's one of the best things about Artemis. Yeah. You've got all these future leaders coming up. It's, and I agree, it's exciting to see like the, because the, when you do, when you step into the woods as a, an adult onset hunter, like you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and you learn a lot about um, how you learn. Um, and how you risk, how you take risks, and what um, makes you feel good about the risk that you're taking, and you know, just processing all of that. And so many of those skills are transferable from the field to the conservation arena. Mm -hmm. And it's really impressive to see the same um, diligence and uh, confidence and um, Oh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Like uh, perseverance mm -hmm. translate from, from women's approach to the woods to their approach to conservation. Yeah. It's powerful. It is powerful, and we need a lot more women in conservation. Yeah. It's really still, even in 2022, at least uh, for the hunting and angling community, it's still a man's game. Mm -hmm. um, but we can change it if we get more of the Artemis women involved. So. Yeah, it's exciting. I think it's really cool. So, Me too, and I enjoy doing it very much, um, especially when it puts me in situations like this with you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, oh, Kathy. You're welcome. It's been fun. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And it went way faster than I ever thought it would. Yep, good, <laughs> good. Okay.
Um, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. <laughs>